Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Needs Some Introduction. I'm your host, Victor. And in this podcast, we discuss and break down television shows they're watching. And I oftentimes will give you recommendations for other TV series, movies, and music that you may want to catch up on. In today's episode, another packed episode, because there is so much content coming out between now and the end of May for Emmy consideration. Plus, the summer movie season is ramping up, and there are many films that I'm going to be watching in theaters as well. Specifically in today's episode, the breakdown of the first two episodes of season four, the final season also of Barry, as well as a conversation I had with Sona catching up on the most recent episode of Succession. We've already recorded that. That's a very entertaining conversation. And premiering on Netflix just yesterday or just today, depending on when I published this episode, the most recent season of Better Call Saul. And I've included republishing my recaps and reviews of the first two episodes of that final season. And if you'd like to hear more recaps of Better Call Saul, we covered it here on the podcast. So do search in our back catalog for those episodes or check the show notes. I've included links to each one of those episodes. There was 13 of them. So there are a lot of links in the show notes. It may just be easier to filter in your podcatcher of choice for Better Call Saul. And we also recapped Barry here, season three. So if you're still catching up on Barry, do check out last week's episode where we also republished some recaps of that series. And in the show notes for that episode, links to all of our recaps for last season's Barry episodes. But wait, there's more. This Friday, Sona and I will be discussing the ongoing series of Yellow Jackets. We'll be in the middle of the season. And there's a new science fiction comedy action series from Damon Lindelof, the creator of Lost, The Leftovers, Watchmen from HBO, and his next big globetrotting adventure series premieres this week, this Thursday, actually, with, I believe, four whole episodes. I will not be able to watch four episodes of that show. They're one-hour episodes, I believe, by the time that we publish the Yellow Jackets recap episode. But I'll probably watch a couple of them and include my initial thoughts in that episode. But more importantly, next Wednesday, in this same weekly slot, a roundup of a bunch of science fiction content that is out there, including full reviews of the first four episodes of Mrs. Davis. We will probably continue to cover that week to week. I may have a new contributor there to discuss AI and technology. My friend Oscar, who's been on this podcast previously. Also hoping to get Ray and Nick back on the show to discuss the very entertaining, despite being kind of sour on the season of The Mandalorian, a really solid season finale of that, which just wrapped up today. Do catch up on that. And I'll try to include that conversation in next week's episode as well. And maybe, just maybe, giving you my opinions of Picard also, the season three, the final season of Picard. After skipping the first two seasons, I'm still catching up on this final season of Picard and may have my review of that season there as well if somehow I can pack that in. And it will be hard to pack that in because there's also other content coming out this week that I want to catch up on, including the Dead Ringers remake with Rachel Weiss, available on Amazon Prime also this weekend. The Evil Dead reboot slash sequel, which is coming this weekend. It's getting very, very strong reviews. And Ari Aster's most recent psychedelic freakout comedy horror film, Bo is Afraid, starring Joaquin Phoenix. All things that are very, very high on my to watch, feeding very, very different interests of mine. The Mandalorian and Bo is Afraid <laughs> appeal to very, very different aspects of my personality. But I am very excited to see all of these things. And I don't even know how I can prioritize all of this. 
but I will be trying to capture my thoughts on most of these topics in those Wednesday episodes and expect to keep seeing these Wednesday episodes through the end of May, I would say. Things get very quiet after that from a television perspective anyway, but this will probably be a weekly event to capture some of this additional content. But on Monday, we will be continuing to cover Succession and Barry, and Fridays will continue primarily to cover Yellow Jackets. And that'll be the case until the end of May. I have now found the next shows we'll be watching in June, and I'll be announcing them soon. But considering how much content is already out there, I'll leave that conversation for a later point. If any of that sounds interesting to you, please do subscribe so you know when that becomes available. Please do recommend us to your friends and family so that we can keep growing our audience and providing you this content. And since we'll be covering conversations about Barry and about Better Call Saul and about Succession, you can opt out of any part of that conversation by simply checking our show notes for links and timestamps to that specific content. All right, let's kick things off with the conversation I had with Sona. Was not able to record with her on Sunday night due to scheduling conflicts, but here is her impressions of the most recent episode of Succession, a very, very entertaining episode of television. All right, so I had a little bit of news about Better Call Saul, which has premiered on, by the time I've published this, would have premiered on Netflix. So everybody who hasn't seen it yet, make sure you check it out. That's my recommendation of the week. (laughs) Cool. Maybe I'll rewatch it as well. It's so good. It really is. I mention it because I will be republishing our conversation in this same episode, our premiere discussion about the first two episodes of the season. And maybe like next week, around the same time, middle of the week, I'll publish maybe that middle cliffhanger episode and then the finale as well. But I will also include in the show notes links to all of our coverage. So if you want to watch the show and listen to our conversations along the way, all those links will be in the show notes. All right. So now I already did the recap of the episode, but I had many questions about these uh, dynamics here in the episode Before I ask you my questions, which are going to basically go down character by character, kind of discussing Mm -hmm. what I think are the power rankings for these characters after this week, I just wanted to get your general impressions of the episode and any takeaways or questions you had. Well, I really liked the episode. I thought it was really interesting. I thought it was really well done. I love the way it moved the plot forward. I loved what we saw of the characters. My main question for you is, Mm -hmm. is it an underline or is it a strikeout? (laughs) (laughs) That's my same question I have. (laughs) This is the question that's going to haunt Kendall for the rest of his life. (laughs) But I honestly think that it probably did not require an underline at any point. I agree with you. I think he Mm -hmm. was crossing it out. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I agree. (laughs) I think he was saying, I don't know who, but certainly not him. (laughs) Well, you know what? In the margin, there's Greg question mark. So. (laughs) Fill in the blank, everybody. (laughs) Greg might be right. (laughs) Yeah, I don't even understand under what circumstances you would feel that that needed an underline. Exactly. I'm pretty certain it's a strikeout for that very reason, right? It's like, imagine you wrote a note and go like, I would like to be buried in New York City, underscore New York City a year and a half (laughs) later. It's like, what was the purpose of that exactly? (laughs) Are you doing one of those, uh, what do you remember the sentence uh, diagrams? Yes, diagramming the sentence. (laughs) Exactly. Okay. In the power rankings, tell me if you agree or disagree with this. In this moment, I say Kendall is at the top of the power charts. You agree? Yes. In this moment, yes. Although I believe 
Tell me if you get this feeling as well. I think that some of the people in this specific episode that were brought very low and humiliated overtly in the show, and then you have these people who, for example, Kendall specifically, got exactly what he wanted. I am pretty sure the show is not setting this up to be like, and here's Kendall getting what he wants, and he's going to stay on top of the heap. I'm pretty sure this is the beginning of the collapse. <laughs> this is Macbeth. <laughs> Speaking of all the Shakespearean references in the yeah. show, this is Macbeth when he gets the crown, and then everything terrible that happens after that. I think something bad is going to happen. I agree. My ba basic theory is that he has this giant skeleton in his closet, and a lot of the people who don't like him know about it. <laughs> Literal skeleton. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Even taking aside the personal baggage, of which there is a lot, I keep coming back to in my head, these children do not know how to do a damn thing. They Nothing. don't know. <laughs> so if they can surround themselves with the right people and like they were describing, Logan was just a puppet and everyone else was <laughs> making the decisions, that would actually be the smartest thing for one right. of the Roy kids right. to do is make themselves a puppet, take the credit and let somebody else make all the decisions. But they have too much ego and pride to admit that they need that. Oh, absolutely. Like if Kendall was there as a figurehead and was even thinking like, I'm going to be mentored by Frank, for example, who's a paternal figure for sure. He's like the good father here. In my recap, I kind of mentioned that there's all these mirrors in this specific episode. You have the three siblings. And then across the hallway, you have Frank and mm -hmm. right. Jerry Carl and, and yeah. Jerry, right? And they're like kind of mirroring each other and conniving behind the scenes. And then you have, for example, Marsha and Carrie as these kind of mm -hmm. opposite ends of these, you know, women in Logan's orbit. And then of course you have Tom and Greg, who are obviously mirrors of each other at different points in their lives. Marsha and Willa too, as Willa very astutely points out. I loved that. Good work, Willa, exactly. Yes. And uh and I also thought about Frank and Logan as the good dad, bad dad in the mm. room at the same time, because you have like the ghost of Logan is there via the letter mm -hmm. itself. And then, of course, Frank putting the most positive spin on that exact same note. And Kendall cannot accept it, which is the fact that maybe he did cross out your name, but he did want you for the job. We know that in watching this show that he was pumping up Kendall. And then, of course, Kendall disappointed him. And then maybe these were impossible expectations. But of course, Kendall was so self-defeating as well. And also Logan loved the power. He wasn't ready oh, yeah, to let absolutely. go of the power, right? There was that episode. I can't remember if it was the first episode, but it was definitely in the first couple of episodes of the whole series where Kendall saying, he, he's supposed to sign the paperwork later today that I'm going to be the head of this whole thing. And Logan just keeps coming up with reasons not to sign, not to sign. And then finally, he's just never going to sign because... Yeah, partly he doesn't trust Kendall, but so much of this show is about pride and ego and power, and he's just not ready to give it up. This is where I feel like it's so abusive in a way, and you've mentioned many times before that the kids should just walk away. That is the emotionally helping thing to do, but it is very hard when this is your dad. He's obviously programmed them throughout their lives to aspire to be him, and he has literally you know, put that carrot in front of them, said, if you just work a little harder, this is going to be yours, and then he pulls it away from them over and over again, and then he pits them against each other, and then he blames their own bad behavior, and they are terrible, terrible people, don't get me wrong, but the dads built these terrible people to, you know, step by step. <laughs> I agree. But if you want to indulge that line of thinking, I will say these people have the money to hire the best therapists in New York City. <laughs> yes. 
Or the best grief counselor available. The, the best grief guy. <laughs> and almost everybody in the city is in therapy, it feels like. So <laughs> right. let's assume that at some point, these kids were in therapy. Like, listen, the therapist won't point blank tell you. They kind of hold your hand and help you figure it out. Maybe they just never were willing to put two and two together <laughs> on their own. And the therapist just ended up very frustrated. <laughs> <laughs> That does seem to be the case with all these kids, by the way, that they get close to having yes. a revelation and then immediately <laughs> run the opposite direction. Yes. All right, let's move on to who's probably number two this week and maybe even number one, who is Roman, I think, who obviously gets to, first of all, shocking to remember that he is the COO. Correct. The yes. <laughs> so that's one thing that he has going for him that I practically forgotten. <laughs> but also he gets some of the best singers here in this whole entire episode. Pre-grieved, I loved. I, I pre-grieved. pre-grieved. <laughs> my, maybe my favorite uh, line he has in the entire episode was when they're looking at the obituaries and there's that picture of oh Logan gosh. with that giant smile on his face. And she says, have you ever seen him smile this way, Ship says? <laughs> and uh, he says, only if a hobo was on fire. <laughs> And the whole thing about like that, parsing what the words mean, right? Like that means racist. (laughs) That means sexual assault is not really a big deal. Um, It was all very, very witty, I thought. Well-connected usually means that you're a pedophile, but he's definitely not a pedophile. (laughs) He wouldn't even hug his grandchildren. (laughs) Oh, God. But also in Roman's positive rankings this week, he is once again proves himself as cruel as he can be verbally, that he is the most emotionally aware and compassionate. He's the only one that gives Carrie any sympathy at all when she is completely demolished by Marsha. It's true. Had he seen Carrie's maniacal grin on the plane, he may not have been <laughs> he may so have not. sympathetic. But yes, it's true. I mean, she clearly was falling apart. And I guess the reality of the situation had hit her and she didn't know what to do with herself. I think Marsha was like, I don't care what you do with yourself, but don't do it here. Also, definitely a winner this week is got to be Marsha, who oh my comes gosh. back in, sells the house for $63 million <laughs> to Connor. Mm-hmm. She's just like, I'm cashing out and I'm going she back to She put in her time and it all exactly. paid off. Yeah, absolutely. She's cashing in her chips and good for her. Like, she's not going to have anything to do with all this drama. She's cashing out. Yeah. And she'll probably make a killing when the stock sells as well. Who else do we have here as winners? Carl has quite a great episode this week. I love when he takes Tom apart. <laughs> just as your friend, let me just explain what they're going to say as about you. As a friend. <laughs> as a friend. <laughs> just so you're not surprised when you hear it. <laughs> I mean, also what I thought was really great in those scenes with Jerry and Carl and Frank, the whole corporate speak about like, don't push me yeah. out of the plane so fast. Like it's very... That familiar to me the idea of like a very thinly veiled way to say i'm not going to agree with you but i'm not going to be obnoxious (laughs) but i'm just going to say in this passive aggressive way that you know maybe you're wrong it was very accurate as to how people speak to each other in business world i think do you really think carl wants to be ceo deal with all those headaches when he wants to buy his greek island Island. brother-in-law Again, I mean, doesn't isn't that what he really wants? Maybe he wants to be in consideration. He doesn't want to be so dismissed so easily. But does he really want it? I do think that of the three, Frank, I think also does not really want it, although he is the CFO. So he's close to that. But I almost feel like 
if he really wanted it, he would be making more moves. And I feel like Jerry does want this, right? If nothing else, just because she feels really bruised by the firing last week. Maybe two things at play. First, that continual theme of like the siren song of power and Mm -hmm. whether you can ever really say no to that. And then also no one wants to be told that they can't do it, right? (laughs) Right, absolutely. If it didn't feel like someone was saying, well, certainly not you, then they wouldn't feel like, but why not me? I could do it. I should do it. Because they're all kind of posturing. It's almost like they have to say that they want it because it's otherwise somehow selling themselves out not to in their heads. So my question to you is, why do you think, despite the very funny conversation amongst those three, where like this uh, this letter could just disappear, it could just we could just flush mm-hmm. it down the toilet. Your hand might get shaky as you get closer to the toilet. Just comically speculating. <laughs> and oh, that is funny. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is. <laughs> they do end up showing the document. They could just put it back in the safe. If this was a legally binding document, if this was his last will and testament or something, obviously that could be very sketchy. But this is just something that he just wrote at some point, and it's years old. They don't have enough votes, by the way, like the family no longer controls more than half of the votes to be able to basically designate one of them to be the new king. So why even muddy the waters with this document? How did you feel about all this? I guess there's a theory that it's going to maybe make the kids easier to divide and conquer somehow, if I'm trying to come up with a reason. But that's really me trying to come up with a reason. It doesn't seem like the natural way of thinking. Well, they they seemed like they didn't want to show them that. They felt like, well, the kids are off the table, and now this is going to complicate things by introducing it. I mean, there could be some plan to somehow humiliate them, right? Let them have it, prove they can't do it. And then, I don't know, but you're working with such a short time frame with the sale. Right. That seems like a long-term plan, but it doesn't seem like they have that much time to work with. Right. But I think that's the rational move. They could bring in someone from outside to become the CEO, but from in the house, who is going to be able to pull this off to calm down the stock market by having another Roy there who theoretically they could message, like they speculate here in the show that they're going to message it out as like there's continuity within the family, et cetera. And more importantly, Roman is the COO. Roman does have a good relationship with Madsen. So they feel like if anyone is going to get this Gojo deal to go smoothly, Roman's going to be important to it. So I think logically this does make sense, except for the fact like Stewie brings up later, you know, the last time I you know, put my eggs in your basket, you uh, singed my pubes. Is that what they mm-hmm. described it? This is the problem, right? Like they do seem to be the rational choice at this moment. Well, why couldn't it have been a hybrid of Jerry and Roman? Could have been Jerry, yes. Someone who has been interim before. Yes. Mm -hmm. And a member of the family. To me, that covers all your bases. I think that's a very good point, by the way. I think that that's why the letter matters and they should have kept it under their hat because I could imagine absolutely like a Jerry Roman thing, probably could have gotten support. And then the family, the the siblings would have felt like, okay, we have some representation, even if there's some animosity because it's there anyway, even with Kendall in place. On the other side of things, yeah, Jerry is definitely the one who has support. And even though we see that faction break out, Carolina says Jerry should do it, as does Jerry. It's a pretty divided vote. But I'm sure Frank or Carl would eventually be like, yeah, sure. 
will support Jerry. Mm-hmm. And that's it. Everything lines up. So I think you're right. absolutely correct. They definitely want Roman in there. The toxic kids are just more in line with what Gojo's about and Matson in general. Right. So yeah, I think that that all makes sense. And then the letter puts Kendall in that position only because the letter exists. And once again, why did they just not disappear that letter? I mean, they talk about it <laughs> and then they show it to them. It's, it's kind yeah. of hard. And the thing is like, this isn't, I don't think this is the type of show where two episodes from now, we're going to be shown a conversation that happened. I mean, it might happen in the conversation, by the way, if this was- It could. Yeah, it could. Like if some so. kind of expository thing. I do not think it's that conspiratorial. He probably had gotten sick. Maybe he wrote this letter around the time of the beginning of the show when he was having yeah. episodes and uh, even before he had the heart attack. So maybe it was on his mind and he goes, well, what would we do in this circumstance? No one's ready for this. And he's like, okay, Kendall, this must have happened before the beginning of the show. But it does seem like he was having conversations with Kendall being like, you're going to step in as my CEO. And then, of course, that's the catalyst for all the actions here on on the show. I think there were some disparate ideas put together in that letter, right, about how he wanted to be buried and stuff like that. Someone who is a titan of the business world, just kind of strange that you wouldn't real quick scan that with your phone and send it to your lawyer. Like you mentioned before, maybe he just never wanted to pretend he was ever going to give up power. And he didn't even want yeah, to have yeah. that out there. You know, like it's one of those people who thinks yes. like, if I say it, it'll I'll like incept right. it in some way, right? Yeah, that's true. Before we move on beyond that, I did love the fact that included in the letter is the fact that he wants to keep those Gogans in the museum. I'm sorry, in the safe, not in the museum. Yes. <laughs> because by like basically keeping them all under wraps, it's a tax liability if they show them. And, and I love that reaction where... Ship mentions, hey, why don't we just burn them? That was very <laughs> and, funny. Uh, collect the insurance. And Carl's like, that would be the dream. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's the dream if they burn up in a fire somewhere. <laughs> These masterpieces. Yeah. Like, Everybody wins. If we're lucky, we'll bur- they'll burn or get water damage somewhere and no one will ever see them again. I, I really think it's such a great gag. <laughs> the Greg question mark is just so funny. Yes, I love that. It's going to haunt everybody. It's really, really funny. <laughs> yeah, I love it. They're like trolling us, the the showrunners, just be like, what could that Greg possibly be? <laughs> I like Greg's analysis that maybe he wants me as the number two. And everybody just laughs at his face like openly. It almost feels like someone came in while he was writing the letter and mentioned something about Greg. And he was like making a note to himself. Figure out well, who Greg what, is. That's what Jerry says, right? Jerry dismisses it right? finally kicks I him out. That. She basically kicks him out and goes, it's a doodle. It was a doodle. <laughs> basically, that's it. It's like you said, like someone was talking to him and he was just scribbling things down while they were talking. Things I got to do later. <laughs> figure out who Craig exactly. is. One more thing to figure out. <laughs> All right. Do we have any other winners here? I think Connor and Willa. Will is definitely a winner. She's making plans to remodel a $63 million townhouse. So good for her. I do find like, you know, when she took that dig at Marsha, I was like, good for you, Willa. You're not as out of it as I expected. And then she's like, we're going to take out this wall. And it's, I'm pretty sure he can't do that with that house. But I'm like, okay, she just went right back down in my estimation. After kind of bumping up. <laughs> Where do we have Jerry? Is Jerry on the winning side or losing side of this? She looks in this episode like a loser, but I think that she's probably in a position here where she's going to be needed and that's going to make her powerful later on. I agree. And she and Roman do have that weird bond. So (laughs) that will probably prove useful for her somehow. All right. Let's start talking about the losers because that's going to be the fun part. (laughs) And maybe more winners will emerge during that conversation. 
All right, where do we start with these losers? Tom? Ooh, oh. rough one for Tom this week. I mean, and I was thinking he might be the one to win it all, yeah, but me boy, too. by the looks of this week, not on. Uh-uh. Shiv is saying, looks like you put your money in the wrong horse, a dead horse. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but that scene on the steps is strangely very tender. You know, he's like saying her mm-hmm. to her, like, don't mention your dad that way. You're going to regret it. And he has that tender moment remembering when they first met. And I feel like that is sincere. And yet he has this face when he walks away from her as if he, he's been like looking for a place to land this whole entire episode and everybody is overtly cruel to him mm-hmm. or even like the other executives, they're just dismiss him. They're like, yeah, yeah, you can, yes. you, you can stand here with us, but no, mm-hmm. but you're like nobody background. You're like wallpaper right now. Like he, he doesn't yes. even exist anymore to them. And he knows it. He knows he's got no home at this point. Carl sums it up perfectly, basically. Mm-hmm. And then another huge loser here is Carrie. Oh man. Like talk about everybody. Oh. There's that conversation at the diner between Tom and Kendall and all the people who were like, I cannot believe these are the people who are deciding our fates. Those people right now have absolutely no power. Like Carrie, especially, is getting dropped off at the subway to find your way home to her sad little apartment. Her little apartment. That whole scene was so pathetic. Mm-hmm. And did she deserve that? I mean, she wasn't a cruel character. She was just taking advantage of an opportunity that had been given to her. It's true, but as Logan's wife, I could see why. Oh, there yes, might be I understand Marsha. It's more the other <laughs> cruelty that people throw her way. I'm not sure their relationship with any of Logan's past relationships, aside from Marsha. I think they found the whole thing a little bit disturbing and upsetting. And <laughs> especially Ruben. As someone whose parent was dating at one point, there are certain things you don't want to think about in connection with your parent. I think the whole idea was like very repellent to them. And she did enjoy, well, I mean, it's hard to say. It's like a chicken or egg thing. I was going to say she does enjoy like giving them bad news, for example. We see that repeatedly. (laughs) But But then again, they treat her horribly, right? Like every conversation they have with her is absolutely despicable. Remember when they were, I think it was when they were in Italy, she was talking about giving him some kind of special herbs to make him more virile. Like oh, nobody right. wants to hear about that terrified kind of stuff, that right? You might so. want to try to get impregnated or something. Yes. Like, yeah. Yikes, that's true. That's a good point. Obviously, they could treat her a little bit more nicely, but also it's not so out of the question for me that they just want to wash their hands of her as fast as possible. True, true. And it's probably the best thing for her as well, to be honest. It'd be horrible now, but <laughs> yeah. she, good thing she got out of that situation, basically. And plus, I think the cynical part of you, right, is saying, well, she's just with my dad for the money. And, you know, that is also off-putting. So, All right. Speaking of, in that same scene, we have Greg, who I think is another big loser, you know, mirroring Tom's face here. I was just thinking about this today, but when he is this clueless guy who makes these witty jokes, he's such a likable schlub in a way. Yes. When he's desperate this week and he's sitting there doing mm-hmm. this running commentary on Carrie as she's mm-hmm. crying and falling down, it was the ugliest possible part. Mean. Greg with a little too much ego is kind of charming. Mm-hmm. Greg with no power and like kind of scrounging mm-hmm. and like making calling other people rats when he is literally like the biggest rat in the mm-hmm. room. There is absolutely nothing charming about this character this week. Totally agree. It's like how you talked about how whether someone's stalking you or whether someone's just wooing yes. you is kind of like your perspective. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Greg as well. Like it's like all that charm is out the window this week. Mm-hmm. The stench of desperation. Desperation makes everybody unattractive. Right. I'm trying to think of who else we have here that might be big old loser. We haven't talked about Shiv. 
oh my God, of course. Um, this is a big Shiv episode too. I'm glad you circled that back. Yes. She's definitely a loser this week, but this is kind of what I hinted at the beginning of uh, this conversation, how you have this thing where Kendall dismisses her and gets what he wants in that moment. And then of course, like she's totally humiliated, stumbles and falls, like literally falls on her yes. face. Yes. And it really makes me feel like the show is not just being cruel here. They are showing these, the dichotomy of these characters. And I feel like they're going to go in opposite trajectories from this moment on. I mean, this is definitely a low point for her. She is pretty much falling apart and dealing with the hormones on top of it. <laughs> exactly. Rough episode for Shiv. You know, we find out that she is pregnant, uh, at least four months pregnant, right? Because her next scheduled appointment would be for the 20th week. So she's, you know, she's halfway there. I really don't like this part of the plot. I don't know. I feel like pregnancy as a plot device is very tired for me and... I have my own baggage that I bring to that that we don't need to get into, but <laughs> I, I just don't think it was necessary. And I don't think it was like earned given right. what we have seen her say about having kids in the past and the conversations she's had with Tom, where he's basically begging her to get pregnant and have his right. child basically so that he'll still have her when he gets out of jail. But nonetheless, <laughs> um, right. You know, we saw her attitude towards all of it. And like, yes, accidents happen. And clearly she is having conflicted emotions, but right, right. it just seems like she is a very smart, very wealthy woman. Accidents don't happen that much when you're in that position. If you feel the way about having a child that she claimed to feel, I just, I don't like it. It just feels convenient. I, I don't think we needed that in on top of everything else that is happening here. <laughs> I feel the same way. It feels unnecessary to the show. However, shooting these shows, it's not like a five-week process or something. It's like a seven, eight-month process. So I think, to be honest with you, it was her pregnancy itself, the actress's pregnancy, that kind of pushed them. But I do, to your point, I hope they do give her a moment to kind of explain herself because she obviously is conflicted. You see her this very week, it's, you know, she gets the news and it seems like she's shell-shocked, almost hoping the pregnancy was right. not viable at this point. So she definitely has issues with it to just play devil's advocate to what you were saying before. There are lots of women who say like, I will never have a kid. And then, you know, that biological clock is ticking and then they're in that situation and they're like, this may be my last chance. Maybe some of that is playing out there. But to your point, I wouldn't be surprised at all if originally they had no intention of her becoming a mother and they're like, well, the actress is pregnant. We'll just write it into the show because if we shoot this thing for six months, it's going to be very, very obvious that she's pregnant by the end of it. I understand what you're saying. People feel like, okay, it's now or never, but we haven't ever seen an inkling of that from her. Correct. Really. Correct. Aside from just trying to shut Tom up by saying like, sure, we could do that right. maybe, I guess, right. later sometime. And she's so good at taking care of that dog. <laughs> I don't know what kind <laughs> yes. of mob she's going to be. <laughs> What I did think was really great, all of the little mannerisms she adopted as somebody trying to hide being pregnant were very mm -hmm. well done. Constantly buttoning her jacket and pulling it down. And I thought it was like very nice attention to detail. I did wonder, and I, I didn't notice at the karaoke scene last week, whether she was having a drink because I feel like her siblings would question her not having a drink at karaoke. Karaoke yeah, is a point. place that you have a drink. I mean, I know Logan came in and that changed the whole vibe anyway, <laughs> right. but, but they were there for a little while before that. I think that's it. I think we touched on all the big players. There's the two points I thought were interesting. One is Colin shows up in jeans. Everybody thinks that's hilarious, by the way. That's right. 
He does block Carrie from going up the stairs. And then after that, he has like a little side conversation with Marsha and then she escorts him or she walks and escort him out. I mean, that sounds like she's kicking him out. She right. walks into the elevator after they have this private conversation, which makes me think that he's going to hang around. Like he may be on her security detail or something. Mm-hmm. So he landed somewhere, even though they make fun mm-hmm. of him for being like the dog looking for his human. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> poor, poor Colin. I think he's going to land on his feet. And, uh, but Interestingly, I'm pretty sure Marsha knows about Kendall's secret, but Colin absolutely knows about it. He's still in the mix. Mm-hmm. Good point. And of course, the last thing is Mencken here. So here's my theory. Is that his name, Mencken? The Republican candidate here, which first of all, surprisingly, they're saying it's a week away from the election. I actually thought they would have to jump to the election, but it looks like every episode this week has been one. I mean, every episode this season has been one day. And I do wonder if they're going to keep doing one mm, day per episode. That would be interesting if they did that. Although they're going to jump to Sweden next week. I mean, maybe they're going to have a slight time jump, like a day or two, because I can't imagine going all the way to Sweden and doing this whole, you know, Europe hopping in a 24-hour period. That's a pretty aggressive- Longest schedule. week of their lives, these poor people. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I mean, I don't even like them, but I feel sympathy for that. That's a lot. And Logan has to get buried in New York City. So it's like, it's got to be within the next day or two. So they got to shoot all the way to Sweden and then come back again the next day. Like that's a hectic hectic schedule. The presidential election, I think is interesting. A couple of things here where it might matter. Shiv got that call from the Democratic candidate early in the season, I think in episode one. Mm -hmm. Right. And more importantly, more importantly, here's my theory. I bet you that Connor who's been flirting with that 1%. His dad's going to die. He's going to do some media. He's going on his honeymoon trip to all of these swing states. Honeymoon states, states, yes. The title of the (laughs) episode. I bet you he's going to start trending up and he's going to get 2 3% of the vote. And Mencken is going to need his 3%. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, that 1% does matter. Great theory. uh, And does Connor all of a sudden have a place at the table, like a position of power? That's a pretty crazy, like Secretary of State or something. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Okay. That's alarming, but yeah, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) We'll have to wait and see. Mm -hmm. But I do think that that's definitely going to be play into the finale. Oh yeah. And let's talk about Matson. (laughs) I like the whole conversation where they blow him off, but not as a power move. They blow him off because they really are just trying to get their head straight on how to message him. And they call him back a few minutes later. And now the assistant answers. He's obviously there, like cackling in the background, making fun of the fact that Logan is dead. It's just like incredibly (laughs) cruel conversation. (laughs) That's a tough one. Your dad died. Tough one. (laughs) (laughs) And then insulting them and saying like, hey, can you send one of those old guys over here within the next 24 hours? And of course, they're the ones who have to really make this thing happen. So it's kind of a little lighting a fire under their ass. But this conversation I thought was a disaster where Shiv is saying, you are going to do the deal, aren't you? Like, you know what? He is in the position of power here, obviously, but you don't want to just like make it clear. It just goes to show that these kids are not ready for this job at all. I did like her self-awareness that she had no idea what she was doing. So I give her credit for that. Like her expressions while she was talking on the phone were very funny. Clearly was just trying to pull things out <laughs> it's of It's like shrugging her shoulders. Like, I yeah. don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> like waving her hand with a shrug. <laughs> like, does that make sense? Does that sound persuasive? <laughs> um, just throw it against the wall and see if it sticks. <laughs> <laughs> Many of us have been unprepared for a conference call. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes, ourselves yes. in the same position. With a lot of shrugging in the room. I've had that. That's happened many times. 
maybe this will make sense and make you stop asking me questions. So in fact, I I actually really did enjoy that. Although, yes, it was further proof that she has no clue what she's doing. So I did like that analogy there where (laughs) that kind of gross analogy, by the way, considering they're all siblings, they couldn't possibly have three people designated as CEO. Two is okay. It's just like, I'll just say lovemaking. (laughs) <laughs> but three is like some kind of hippie orgy. <laughs> but then the really pertinent point there is when Roman goes, and you have no experience. And then she take, kind of takes that, you know, Sarah Snook's expression. She kind of takes a little oh, little sting there. Mm-hmm. But it's all true. It's all true. She does not So true. And she tried to justify it by saying she had done X. I can't remember what it was, but one of them said that was a make work project. And it's true. Sometimes the truth hurts, Shiv. Okay, random speculation now here is how this is all going to shake out. I think that they are way more interested, these showrunners, in making social commentary about late-stage capitalism and playing out these toxic family dynamics than having some kind of shocking twist ending or something. But in this puzzle box way that this show probably is not going to be, do you see some kind of shape of a surprise rise to power? For example, Tom's logistics folder play into this at all? Does Greg have some secret information that could help him out or hurt somebody one way or the other? I have no specific speculation, but I do feel because this is the final season, I think nothing is off the table and I think they're just going to really go for it. And I wouldn't be surprised if there are some shocking revelations. Jesse Armstrong has specifically said that on the one hand, he wanted to kill Logan off early in the show because he keeps making all these analogies to the show in the context of King Lear and Hamlet. And I feel like he wants to have like that kind of theatrical denouement where people are, you know, knives out and like there's a lot of bloodshed at the end. I don't mean physical bloodshed. I mean, metaphorical mm-hmm. bloodshed here. One person makes a power play and then there's like another trap for them. And then before you know it, it's like the person who didn't want the role ends up having it at the end, like this irony. So I think mm-hmm. that's in the mix. And he also specifically mentioned in one of those interviews that he also wants to have like one of those endings, like an ending that people goes like, wow, I didn't expect that, right? You know, those last few minutes with the proposal for how to present Logan was a puppet Mm -hmm. all along and um, something about how he treated Connor's mother. All of that, I think, has the possibility of setting a lot of other things into motion just as far as like, well, if we're taking the gloves off, we're taking the gloves off, right? And then everyone's going to start saying things about everyone that may or may not be true. So I do think that there will be some consequence. And also, you know, Roman rejected this as disgusting and Kendall's going to go do it behind his back. There definitely are going to be consequences of that. I'd be interested to see if Kendall starts to get a little too big for his breeches and starts saying, I was the one who came up with all these ideas. And then Roman starts to feel that, and he starts to think that this is going to be interim only. He really wants this play, and it looks like it's actually going to happen. Maybe Roman goes, you know what? I'm the one who's going to leak that information about that kid who died, <laughs> right? So <laughs> it could be something like that. And to your point, it's like very much like a kind of a Shakespearean play. You can imagine that everybody starts pulling their knives out. And exactly. you know, it becomes like a Mexican standoff and just whoever is randomly left standing at the end right. just randomly gets the position, whether they want it or not in some ways. Like this thing could be a flaming mess by the end of it. Oh, I thought we were done talking about the plot, but I did want to run one more thing by you. Mm-hmm. How much of this do we buy? I think Tom's telling us mostly the truth <laughs> in the fact that he died in the bathroom fishing his 
bowl, <laughs> out of the toilet bowl. <laughs> there was some chatter on the internet that they had been mile high clubbing it, him and oh, Karen. Yikes. But part of the reason they couldn't get to him and part of the reason that he probably was so certainly dead by the time they got to him was because they couldn't get into the bathroom. So he was mm-hmm. in there by himself when that happened. I mean, it's a very specific detail to offer. Um, (laughs) If it were completely fictionalized, that would be very strange. And I don't think Logan is the, he didn't strike me as Randy in that manner, that he would (laughs) go for it with Carrie on the corporate jet with all those other people there. But but maybe I'm wrong. (laughs) I mean, this actor's in his 70s, but he's supposed to be playing someone who's like in their mid to late 80s, I think. Right. I think he's had an 85th birthday, so it's sometime after that. I don't know if that's your your libido at that age. <laughs> Green juice aside or whatever it may be. <laughs> right. But like you said, also, they said he was stuck in the bathroom. They couldn't get to him. So that also supports that he was in the bathroom alone, assuming he was ever in the bathroom <laughs> trying to right. get his well, phone. <laughs> right. I also like the detail that he stopped wearing his compression socks to impress Terry. So the- <laughs> I missed that. <laughs> Not that I think he wanted to show off his legs. I think it's more that he just felt like an old man with his compression socks on. So, My mom loves hers. She wears them every day. <laughs> <laughs> well, if she suddenly had a 25-year-old lover, she might have changed it too. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> you never know. All right. Next week, we are off to the conclave of the Gojo folks out in Sweden. Mm-hmm. Some beautiful, beautiful scenery in that upcoming those coming attractions. Mm-hmm. And can't wait to see it. Thank you again for the conversation. And of course, everybody, we will be back, Sona and I, on Friday. I only have to wait a couple of days for that one because I'm publishing this on Wednesday. That uh, <laughs> We'll be discussing our Yellow Jackets coverage on Friday. That's right. Until then, goodbye, Sona. Thanks for the conversation. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay, so that was our conversation about Honeymoon States. Here's the breakdown of Barry's two premiere episodes this week. Hello. This is a collect call from Barry, an inmate at California State Penitentiary. Do you accept the charges? Yes. Is it now? Yeah. Did you guys trick me? Are you and Jim Moss working together? Are you there? Look, Mr. Kusno, I, I want you to know I went there because I was worried about you and I was protecting you. You know that, right? You know that, right? Are you mad at me? Mr. Kushner, are you mad at me? Because I love you. What did you say? I said I love you. Hey, Barry? Yeah? I got you. Okay, Barry. Season four, episode one, an episode called Yikes, all lowercase. I wonder if this lowercase type titling is going to have some kind of payoff because I have noticed it for the past couple of seasons now. Quickly, some production information about these seasons of Barry. There was a three-year hiatus between season two and season three, and now less than a year later, we get season four. Bill Hader's been doing the promotional circuit around the show. He has directed and written this entire season of the show, something that he did most of last season, but now this season pretty much taking 100% creative control. And it does show there is a single mind behind the show. It has much more of a single-minded temperament and storytelling. It really starts to feel like just one long meandering movie. And I mean that in a complimentary way. 
and also having this very solid visual style at this point. So season three of Barry was written and was about to go into production when the COVID shutdowns occurred. This gave them extra time to rewrite season three and season four at the exact same time. So season three and season four became a single unit. I've made multiple comparisons in the past to Barry's trajectory as well as Atlanta. It also features some of the same creative forces behind it, by the way, some of the same creators and producers. And there definitely is a certain temperament, the streak of dark comedy, but also visual surreal elements that parallel these two shows. And similarly, though that show also took a two-year-plus hiatus, was also had season three and season four written at the same time. So those two seasons really became of a piece. And we may end up seeing the same thing here with this fourth season of Barry. Now into the show itself. Barry arrives at the prison. The prison guards are watching the news coverage of Barry. He's a celebrity, a celebrity criminal. And this is very entertaining. There's a police officer who's saying, look, he's over there, but he's over here. He's over there, but he's over here. And what does he want? He can have anything he wants. It's definitely some kind of commentary here about how someone who should be considered just purely villainous because of this element of celebrity suddenly makes them something else. It gives them special access. It makes us treat them like they are something different than what they actually are. And I think there's definitely some commentary here on the performances we do as people in our lives themselves, how we're play acting, and also how we allow a narrative to affect the way that we consider each other. But at this moment, it's just played as a joke. And I do find it very entertaining. And this, these, uh, these correctional officers will pop up again. Once he arrives in prison, Barry calls Kusina. He's confused. So naive. Here's someone who is very good at what he does, not only in the act of killing, but in playing out the scenarios in his mind so that he doesn't get caught. And somehow is so naive at this moment, maybe blinded by the narrative that he created in his mind around Kusina. He tells them that, Were you, are you mad at me? Did you guys trick me? I love you. Gene does take the call and simply says, I got you. The next thing we see, very creepy scene. Sally's on the plane. She's actually dreaming. We can tell from the filter on the image that this is not actually happening. She hears a child laughing. And when she wakes up inside of her dream still, she sees someone crawling up over the back of the airplane seat, his fingernails all dirty, his hair all matted with dirt. And she's saying like, come on, come on, like she's coaxing a little boy. But I'm pretty sure this is Barry in this nightmare or dream sequence. She wakes up as the plane is landing. Her phone suddenly has cell service again, and she gets a thousand notifications. The whole Barry story has broken while she was in the air. This is just hours after the conclusion of last season, and it's all just flooding in on her right now. She gets to the airport and she starts getting notifications. She talks to one of her friends. And her mother's there. And oh my God, the relationship between Sally and her mother is absolutely astonishingly bad. She starts to hyperventilate in the car at one point as she feels the weight of this realization about Barry. My boyfriend was a murderer and I was there when it happened. Her mom just sighs and rolls her eyes. And what a fascinating topic, this idea of what the history is between these women. I can only imagine Sally being belittled and ignored by her mother, her mother thinking that she's just being so melodramatic. And I'm sure that was all this melodrama in Sally's upbringing. We've seen it in her personality. We've also seen that she chooses terrible men to be with. But more importantly, maybe she's just choosing people based on her own expectation of who they're going to be within the context of the relationship. 
this is a really interesting concept here. The idea of performance and how everybody performs and how in the end, we are probably only interacting ever with this version of the person that we've created in our own minds. And this is the mother immediately falling into the behaviors, the patterns of behavior with her daughter that they've been in probably since she was a teenager and Sally falling back into the routine as she was at that time as well. Once Sally gets home, her mother just talks about how inconvenient this all is. We turned your bedroom into a man cave. I don't know where you're going to sleep. I had appointments today. I didn't expect you to come in. I mean, really, she just makes it feel like Sally being there is a pure inconvenience. You would think that she might be happy to see her daughter, at least momentarily, um, coming back from Los Angeles after all this time, but apparently not. Sally gets a call also from Barry. I love this interaction here on the phone where you hear, will you accept the call from Sally? I love you. Don't hang up. <laughs> and she responds, no, I will not take the call. Don't ever call me again, you liar. Speaking of everybody playing roles, here's the dad playing the placator. You can tell he's been in this role many times before, smoothing out these rough situations between these two women who do not get along at all. This whole sequence is so funny. Sally is once again falling into patterns of behavior when she was younger. The dad comes to check in on her. He's like, there's my girl under the desk. <laughs> I also like how she, how Sally mentions, did mom tell you what happened with my boyfriend? And he says, yeah, that sounds like a rough situation. I'm glad you're not involved with that anymore. Murder. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad I'm not you're involved with murder anymore. And then he just backs out of the room. Oh, I know. I know. She needs her space. I know the routine. He does want to see the Joplin pilot episode, however. The mom is just nitpicking the entire time. You don't have a daughter. You never worked at a bank. I need another drink. And then she says, I was abused by Sam. He used his actual first name. She immediately perks up about that. Oh, these other things aren't true, but you said Sam. I have to call Sam's mom. Yes, that's a great way to build bridge with your daughter. Let me apologize to the mom of your abuser because they used his first name on the show. And she completely dismisses Sally as if he wasn't even abusive to you. And now her mom has to know what's happened in the news. It's all over the news. So she goes, mom, can you just help me out here? I just got some really horrible news about my new boyfriend too. And the mom's reaction is simply, you sure can pick him. <laughs> this total reversal from being like, that didn't even happen to you sure can pick him. And then the most fascinating part of this interaction is when she asks her mom for help and her mom simply says, how can I help you when you're yelling at me that way? Sally has not been yelling at all, but now yells at her. Her mom is intentionally triggering her behavior. It's so toxic and disturbing to watch. An interesting corollary with this toxic parental relationships we see on succession as well. The dad once again jumps up. Oh, don't get upset. You can come to work with me. We can hang out. It'll be fun. Once again, playing his usual role of sitting by quietly until things blow up and then trying to trying to diffuse the situation. Now, when we get back to the prison, once again, I'll just note here that Bill Hader is the director of all these episodes. I love all the directorial touches here in the episode. Even something as subtle as the way that Barry discovers that everyone knows his story in the prison and how he's just trying to express Barry's interiority and the visions he's having throughout. We see Barry from behind and we just hear the other inmates talking about him. He gets up angrily and walks across the cafeteria. And this is where Fuchs notices him for the first time. So he's, Fuchs sees Barry, but Barry does not see Fuchs at this moment. And everything is so well thought out. 
even in the very next scene, Fuchs, having now known that Barry is there and fearing that Barry's going to try to kill him, he goes and tries to cut a deal with these other detectives within the prison. And I love the design of this room. It's very narrow. It's probably a hallway that they've decorated. They have soundproofing all around it, even on the floor. They have electrical outlets right in the center of the walls, just a strange little touch to indicate you could basically place a desk anywhere here and have all your electronics available to plug in. But just every detail of the set decoration and of course of the actual shot selections, directorial choices, just really exceptional, the level of detail. This really feels just so personal and so handcrafted. I'm more of a film fan or have been traditionally than a television fan. Really feels more like someone directing a film. And maybe this is just going to feel like a three or four hour film by the end of the season. Fuchs makes the pitch that that dead cop, that's only the tip of the iceberg. I can wear a wire. Barry's going to talk to me and I'm going to get you a lot more murder cases. All he wants is some witness protection. So that's Fuchs and Barry early in the episode. Meanwhile, Kusanau, he gets complimented by the head of detectives or chief of police. I'm not sure who this, his title here on the show. He uh, <laughs> says, I thought when you came forward that you were just going to flake out and disappear on us. Here we have Henry Winkler once again, great as Gene Kusanau. Kusanau says, yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> but no, he did it. He caught Barry. And he just wants to make sure if this goes to court, I need you to testify. You're my key witness. And Kusanau says, of course I will, while his son looks on admiringly. I do want to call out where these characters are at this early point in this episode, because there are so many reversals of fortune on all these characters between these two episodes, which really very much are of a piece. You have almost everybody reverse, and in some cases, flip-flop back to their original position. Kusanau arrives at his class, and he gets a standing ovation. Nothing but cheers. He is a hero. Jim Moss is there too, giving him a stink eye. He mentions to Gene that reporters have been snooping around. Gene says, yeah, there's this one guy, this Vanity Fair reporter. He's really been tenacious. And Gene's the one who first offers up, we should not talk to the press. Moss says, you're right. It'll hurt the case against Barry. And I do not want my daughter's murder to become entertainment for the masses. Gene has become a much better actor here because Moss does not see through him. Or maybe he does, and we just don't know it yet. I do love the way this ends, where he goes, you know what you should do, Jim? You should take this guy into the garage and question him like you did me. You scared the shit out of me. And then he laughs nervously and goes, there's the guy. <laughs> As Jim just stares him down. Meanwhile, in Santa Fe, we fade in. This is heaven. Cristobal, Hank have everything they've ever wanted. There's no going back. But Hank has demons and he startles when the landlord shows up. As she's doing some repair to the oven, in the kitchen they ask, well, we're looking for something more permanent. What's the real estate like out here? And she mentions there's a sand shortage, so prices are pretty high. Hank has a great reaction saying, you guys have problems finding sand out here? <laughs> but this is legitimately true, by the way. There is a sand shortage of quality sand for construction. So an interesting true life situation that they're baking into the show. She says these sands come from overseas, come from Africa, come from Asia, and there's still supply chain issues. So, And Cristobal's wheels start spinning. Cristobal takes Hank out to dinner and says, we can still be big shots. Hank, I know you still have ambitions. I know you feel unfulfilled. And this isn't criminal. We can be legitimate businessmen and still be hugely successful. Hank says, I don't want to leave Santa Fe. There's such great trail running out here. <laughs> And there's a little tension here between them. When someone comes over to offer them musical accompaniment, hilariously, it's just a rain stick. I mean, it's not a band 
with a touch of Rainstick, that whole musical performance is just Rainstick. <laughs> Meanwhile, back in prison, Barry is having these visions. I love these stylistic choices. We hear first Sally reading from the script. This is when Barry met her sitting on those stairs outside of the actor's studio. And there's some stairs here in the courtyard. And he starts to merge the two things together. And suddenly the prisoners clear out and we see her acting class. Jean walks across the courtyard and ushers her inside. And just as that door closes, it pops back open and Fuchs comes out, hilariously, transparently trying to get Barry to confess to one of his murders. Barry comes back to the moment and simply says, if I hadn't tried to understand myself, we wouldn't be here. You were right about Mr. Cousineau. I never should have trusted him. I never should have taken that acting class. If I hadn't tried to understand myself, we wouldn't be here. I'm sorry, Fuchs. And we know he's talking about him trying to join the acting class to understand himself a little better or to learn maybe how to be a normal person, how to act like a normal person. And he says to Fuchs, I'm sorry. He doesn't try to kill him. He says, I'm sorry. This is all Fuchs has wanted to hear. As we approach the end of this first episode, Hank has a nightmare of waiting to die when he was imprisoned in that basement in Cristobal's mansion. Barry's there with him and he says, what do we do? Barry just shrugs his shoulders, but smiles at him, gives him this kind smile. Just as he startles awake, he decides to call Barry and check in on him in the middle of the night. Someone else answers the phone. Hank says, this isn't Barry. And he hangs up the phone. That's when he Googles and finds out the whole story. Barry's been caught. Cristobal wakes up and says, why did you get up? What's happening? And Hank improvises quickly. I've been researching the sand idea. I think you're right. Let's go back to LA. There's a reversal. Barry is in prison and he starts to beat himself up, literally, berating himself in front of a mirror, punching a wall until he bleeds. When that same starstruck prison guard from the beginning of the episode comes in and is very compassionate to him going, hey, buddy, I know you've done some bad things, but you're not such a bad guy. You were in the military. In this moment, Barry basically decides to attempt suicide by cop. You were in the Marines, man. That's pretty special. And you were, you were also on TV. Loss of Humanity? That's a great show. When I was feeling low, my mom always used to say, each of us is more than the worst thing we've ever done. I always liked that. Gave me hope. I'm a cop killer. I'm a fucking cop killer. If I saw you walking down the street, I'd fucking kill you. I'd kill your fucking kids. I'd kill your fucking wife. And I'd kill your fucking mom. And the demeanor of this prison guard completely changes. And he starts to beat Barry. As he's getting beaten, we go back into Barry's headspace again, something that we've been doing ever since season three, late in season three, when Barry almost died from that poisoning. And we see this memory of Barry as a boy playing in the desert or at the beach. It looks like a desert, not a beach. I didn't see any water, but it does make me think about the water sequence last season where Barry's on the beach with all the people he's killed. And Barry hears his father's voice calling to him. 
Fuchs rushes past the guard, gets past him saying that, I'm an informant. <laughs> like that gets some special privileges. But he comes in, rips his wire off, and he picks up Barry and hugs him to him. And we see this smile on Barry's face. Poor Barry. It's so strange to have sympathy for Barry here when he is a pure sociopath. And literally, there are so many innocent people on the show or somewhat innocent people. For example, Gene's son, just to name one, who potentially are at risk from this very person. <laughs> and still we have the sympathy for him. As the episode ends, we see this Vanity Fair reporter, I think his name is Lou, receives a call. His wife brings the phone to him and says, it's the Batman voice again, very important, again. So someone has been trying to get this reporter's attention. And he says, how did you get this number? So this person on the phone has very insistently been trying to get the attention of this specific writer. And when we cut to the other side of the phone conversation, it's Gene. And he says, meet me tomorrow. I'm going to give you special instructions if you want to get the whole story. So some thoughts on the episode before we get into episode two. As I mentioned, just beautiful cinematography, beautiful decision-making, not only in the set decoration, in the way they use the prison, in the way the camera moves around that space, just all incredibly well done. But just these really beautiful segues, which I think will continue throughout the season when we enter and exit Barry's headspace, not only suddenly seeing Sally, suddenly seeing Sally, wow, in the courtyard, all of this is just really incredibly well done. Also, a few more themes here. Like I mentioned before, obviously the idea of acting, that's been a running theme in this whole entire show, not only as a satire of Hollywood, but just what it means to be an actor and how we are all acting in different roles in our lives. And we see that here. Strangely, in this episode, Barry and Sally are not acting. They're not acting. But everybody else is acting. Her parents are acting their roles. Kusanau is an actor. Hank is lying to, to Barry to get him to speak. It's all just one act after another. And of course, Hank is lying to Cristobal to get him to believe that he actually does want to go back to LA for this sand plant. And also just the reversals of certain characters. At the beginning of the episode, Kusanau is this honorable character. Everybody's so impressed with him. He has reversed himself from his original nature of being this attention-seeking absentee dad who sabotaged the career of an ex-girlfriend because she rejected him. The person he was has fundamentally changed by the end of season three and now the beginning of season four. And by the time we get to the end of this episode, here he is seeking to potentially sabotage what he's done by speaking to this Vanity Fair reporter. Another reversal, Hank, so happy I'm in heaven at the beginning of this episode and ready to go back into the belly of the beast, literally having visions of the nightmare world he escaped and going right back into it for the reason to save Barry? Very strange. And of course, Fuchs, terrified of Barry at the beginning of the episode and immediately flipping the opposite direction and ripping off the wire affectionately grabbing him by the end of the episode. And there will be more reversals in episode two. So let's get into that episode right now. Episode two is called The Bestest Place on Earth, which happens to be Dave and Buster's apparently. It's not an easy task putting aside differences, trading out your guns for your listening ears, then trucking all the way to the Dave and the Buster's here in Torrance. It takes a strong will to do such things. I would know. Not long ago, I was the head of the Bolivian cartel. We were at war with the Chechens. They belittled us, fought us, stole from us, completely destroyed our operations. But now, <laughs> we're fucking. Not implying that's where you guys are headed. I understand Cristobal and I are total unicorn situation. The point is, 
we were able to put aside a major blood feud. And the only way to do such a thing is by first admitting what you don't do well. By admitting what you need. See, the Chechens had style and distribution, but we were complete boners at stealing shit. And we were the best of these, but had no idea how to distribute. And we were too busy blowing the shit out of each other to realize that we needed each other. Our strengths could help each other's weaknesses. Together, we were stronger. Together, we are stronger. Okay, say that shit in your mind right now. Make it your mantra. And at first, I get that you may need to hold your nose when working with someone who might have killed a close friend or family member. That sucks, but... That shit will fade away when you see the amazing bounty of power that comes with working together. Now, we have a pitch that will bring us all together in a way that we will all profit, where we will all succeed beyond our wildest imagination. But there must be zero bloodshed. Hello, can I start you guys with an appetizer? Uh, yes, we'll have some jalapeno poppers for the table, please. The killing must stop. At the start of the second episode, Barry's in his cell once again, beating himself up, literally, beating his head against the wall. He suddenly hears himself again, this younger version of himself in the cell with him, he gets called by his father once again, and he runs right out onto the beach. Another beautiful segue here from this headspace into a memory. And just this beautiful low-tech segue, we see another one, an even more impressive one later in this same episode. And we see Barry meeting Fuchs for the first time, friendly with the dad and saying, one of these days, we'll play Army. I love how this is shot from such a distance, which memories can feel this way. And Hader has mentioned the fact that he did not want to shoot this in close-ups because he just didn't want to see... Stephen Root made to look younger. He just finds that to be cheesy looking. So here he is, a very low-tech way of creating this sequence, very cleverly doing it all with the placement of the camera. So once again, Hayter really proving himself to be a really talented director, even in just the decisions he makes to pull these sequences off. We then have this hilarious sequence where Fuchs goes to accuse those detectives of trying to force him to rat on his close friend. One of the detectives mentions that, hey, you guys were already in a friend fight before we got involved. <laughs> Fuchs also mentions that he is now going to have his lawyer, Gail Winograd, show up. This immediately concerns the detectives. Apparently, this guy can get anybody off. We later see Fuchs is trying to recruit a gang within the prison. He interrupts their watching of Yellowstone. He starts handing out nicknames. Some people like this. Some people just want to watch their show. I especially like the whole sequence where someone who's called Jason, he's like, no, no, we can't have a Jason in our gang. Your name's going to be Livewire. And when the next guy rejects his nickname, he says, well, how about we call you Jason? <laughs> Which is just confusing everything by calling the other character Jason. Just pure comedy here in a pretty dark episode. Note that this is explicitly Fuchs doing a performance. This is a speech that he's practiced and he talks to Barry about it. How did you do? Barry says, you know what? I've been taking some acting lessons. You've been doing pretty well. They're very much on good terms here at this moment. But this is a theme in this episode, this idea of rehearsing a conversation, trying to recruit people to agree with you. So once again, the purpose of performance, even when it masks true intentions. Barry gets a visitor. He's wondering, is this my lawyer? But no, it's Sally. She supposedly is there to know where Muffin is, their dog. He calls her out and says, well, Muffin's okay. And if that's all you wanted, why are you still there? Sally, I'm a piece of shit. You gave me life I don't fucking deserve. You were so loving to me. And you made me feel 
like a fucking human. And it was just you being you and just you being Sally. I feel safe with you. You feel safe with me? Is that what you said? You feel safe with me? Sally. Sally, that's beautiful. Do you really feel safe with me? Do you mean that? Because you are safe with me, Sally. You're always going to be safe with me. Sally, I love you. Sally. I love you. And you're always, you're always safe with me. He starts telling her that she was so kind to him. She made him feel like he was normal, like he was a human. Interesting that she is not a, a good girlfriend. But since he has no reference point from normal human interactions, in his mind, this was a healthy, normal relationship. And it'll become clear by the end of the episode that that was part of the allure. But also, she mentions to him, I feel safe with you. Ironic that she tells him that she felt safe with him, even though she was at risk potentially the entire time she was with him. She does then hang up the phone and walk out. And this gets Barry's wheels spinning. So speaking of reversals in these two episodes, here we have Sally flipping from her reaction to him calling her to now running back into his arms here, metaphorically, and also running back to LA after just going to visit her parents. Here's yet another irony. She goes to meet her agent and the agent says, I can't get you work. You are toxic right now. You were already the entitled C word. And now you're the entitled C word who was dating an entitled K word killer. But here's the irony of it. Sally wanted to not only just act, she wanted to be famous. Now she is famous. And her agent even tells her, your career isn't over. You can make a fortune. You can get a reality show. You can start a podcast about the murders and you can get really rich. So a little cultural commentary here, once again, on this fascination with true crime, whether that's podcasts or TV shows. And another theme here within the show, be careful for what you wish for. You may just get it. Cristobal and Hank are also back in LA and they're meeting with some gangs. They have some very bad blood with these gangs and they do not want to talk to Hank and they do not want to meet with each other, but they have a plan to get them to all sit down together. They take them to Dave and Buster's, the bestest place on earth. They also have another rehearsed presentation where they're trying to get these gangs to work together for this sand scheme that they have. One of the gangs has the connections to import the materials, the other one good at distributing. And if they work together, they can create this new giant corporation. And I know it's hard to get over those grievances. After all, some of you may have killed each other's friends or family members. And I love this description where Hank says, look, we were on the opposite side of these gang war at one point, Hank and Cristobal. And look at us now, we're fucking. <laughs> not that you guys have to, that's not going to happen to you guys necessarily. <laughs> Cristobal and I, we're a unicorn situation. <laughs> this has made me laugh out loud. I love the way this whole thing is shot. The camera is pinwheeling around this table. This is like something out of The Dark Knight, or maybe more cogently, the scene from The Untouchables. But I love how this has been rehearsed, and Hank is ready to pick up exactly where Cristobal takes off. And you see Hank running back into position so he can pick up the baton. He'll be in the right placement, just as the script advises. This is all really, really well done and very, very fun. I also love the way that the waitress interrupts at the worst time of this conversation. Oh yeah, we'll just have some jalapeno poppers for the table. The killing has to stop. <laughs> very funny to think of these random bystanders listening in on this conversation. As the gangs are escorted to the fairgrounds of the Dave and Busters, Cristobal's showing them where all the games are. Hank gets a text from somebody. 
They can bust out Barry, but they need manpower. Later in the episode, the gang members all come back. They had a great time. They all have their stuffed animal prizes. And Cristobal makes the final pitch. They can all get rich. They can come out of the shadows. Get a tailor because you're going to need some suits, as Hank says. And then suddenly, just as the pitch is going so well, and this audience seems completely on board, Hank says, we got to bust out our friend, Barry. Cristobal slowly turns to him. What the hell is this about? Meanwhile, in another part of Los Angeles, this Vanity Fair journalist goes outside and finds a note, a scavenger hunt to meet with the secret source that he's been talking to on the phone. He goes to the very next hop on this trip, and Gene is standing there with the clue in his hand. Holy shit, you got here fast, he says. But he gives him the next clue. Eventually, this journalist shows up. It's at Kusanau's Theater. He's written a one-man show to explain everything that happened, the whole story of his relationship with Barry. Okay, so I successfully escaped from a trunk. I survived a wild pack of dogs. I go home, and there he is. His arm around my grandson. Death in his eyes. And then I realize he's not in charge. I am. I know how to press those buttons. Hey, I installed them. I love you, Barry. You do? You betcha. Can you say it again? Sure, why not? I love you. Mr. Kusino, I would do anything for your forgiveness. The next time I see him, he's got his hat firmly in his hand, and in the other hand, a bag filled with $250,000 cash. Then the dope looked at me and said, I will do anything for your forgiveness, Mr. Kusno. Oh, you will, fuckface. You will. Wow, I, uh, I got more than I bargained for with that. That was an amazing story. It was long, it was, but it was an amazing long story. Well, I laid it out as honestly as I could. So, uh, Barry took you hostage, got your career back on track, and then you punched him in the face. And then you and Jim Moss teamed up and you busted him. That's about the size of it. Once again, Winkler, just incredible in this show. <laughs> His terrible imitation of Barry with a stupid Barry voice. And also the way that he is actually factually correct with most of the things that he's saying, and yet putting himself in the most heroic light across the board. More acting, more manipulation of facts, more rewriting a story to make you the hero. Once again, all themes here within the show. I love how hilariously drenched in sweat he is by the end of this. This has been a very energetic performance. And I love this, the journalist reaction. That was an incredible story. <laughs> and I love how he abbreviates everything he saw into a couple of sentences. <laughs> and Gene goes, yeah, that's about right. <laughs> As this journalist leaves, we see that Sally was there. Sally had come back to this second home of hers and she saw the whole thing. And she's judging Gene here. She accuses him. Why didn't you tell me? I was the one living with him. And you're telling me that you didn't see one sign? No. Sally, we're both victims here. He was obsessed with us. He treated us like superstars. As actors, 
That's really hard to resist. But it's over. So why did you really come? How was she unable to see any clue of what was going on right in front of her face? Very funny that Jean tells her, look, he made us feel special. He treated us like superstars. As actors, we can't possibly <laughs> deny that. We can't ignore that. It's very hard to resist. And he offers her to make her a teacher at the theater. Meanwhile, back in the prison, Winograde, the lawyer, has met with Fuchs. He has some ridiculous tactics. He explains how he can get anybody off. He just says that everything that they got it on video, it's deep faked. He explicitly tells Fuchs that he manufactured the evidence to get his defendant off. And Gene says, so did he do it? <laughs> yes, he did it. Also interesting here specifically that Winograde says, I'm not here to audition. So once again, this acting metaphor, he's there for the job, but he won't audition for it. And also just in general, how Winograde describes, oh, I had the jury laughing out loud at my shenanigans, another performance. Yet again, another audience, another performance, another script you're reading to convince or manipulate your audience. And Fuchs and Winograde both wonder, where is Barry? Turns out Barry is talking to those same exact detectives. He's trying to cut a deal with the same cops Fuchs had gone to see earlier. Earlier in the episode, Barry had had this fantasy sequence. He saw himself again as a child in the desert talking to Fuchs. There is that paternal bond between him and Fuchs. And we see this really interesting metaphorical segue here from that fantasy of the past and the transition to a fantasy of the future. We see this marital party running through the desert, an incredible sequence here where they run directly down this hallway into a wedding reception. And in that wedding reception, we see an older Barry and an older Sally dancing together. And this is Barry deciding, does he run off with Fuchs, this paternal figure from his past, or does he embrace this potential future with Sally? And his decision is to go with Sally because while he's cutting this deal, with his detectives, he mentions he will talk to him about all his connections, all the work he did for all these gangs. He's got connections into all of them. He just wants to go into witness protection, but he has to bring somebody with him. And in his twisted delusional mind, he's thinking, I'm taking Sally with me and I'll make her always safe and always by my side. This actually sounds absolutely terrifying to me, but maybe, maybe Sally will go for it. I don't know. I guess that's one of the things that needs to be seen that's going to play out over the course of this season. As we get to the end of the episode, that night, Cristobal and Hank are arguing. Cristobal tells Hank, why? Why did you bring up the Barry thing? And Hank's just kind of like, well, you know, he's in jail. I feel bad for him. And Cristobal says, this is why people think you're soft. And speaking of reversals, yet another reversal, Hank gets a call from Fuchs at that moment. And Fuchs tells him, that Barry is talking. I love the way this conversation begins, by the way. Fuchs tells him, when you're honest, you get fucked. Love will lead you to ruin. <laughs> Hank says, are these song titles? <laughs> but once Hank finds out that Barry is turning into a snitch, he turns back around, walks back into that room with Cristobal and tells him, we have to kill Barry. So once again, these reversals in this episode. Fuchs going from ratting out Barry to embracing him at the end of last week's episode, and now back on the outs again with Barry. Barry, of course, switching allegiances 
last season clinging to Jean, then flipping over to Fuchs, and then with Sally's visitation, switching it all over to Sally again. But he's fixated. He fixates on one person at a time, and he's very fickle. This may change again. And of course, Hank deciding first in last week's episode to not leave Santa Fe, to then go back to LA, really because he wants to free Barry. And now immediately flipping that switch, and now he has to kill Barry. So very curious to see how this all goes. That Vanity Fair article is going to come out. It's going to make Kusanao look very bad. I'm an anonymous source, right? The journalist's like, uh, yeah, sure, sure. Honestly, even if he says anonymous source, there's no way that Moss is not going to know exactly who spoke about these facts. Only one person could have this level of detail on these stories. And only one person would shade the story in such a positive way towards Gene. Of course, it's Gene himself. You barely even need to read between the lines. So yeah, when you think about the arc of these characters, these two episodes very much of a piece. I do not want to keep seeing, by the way, episode by episode, that this will switch back and forth and resetting allegiances back to season three, back to season two. That would be a little boring to end this show on that type of note, but I am pretty sure that they have a very confident destination for this story and we're in very good hands here. So I'm very, very excited to see where it goes. I honestly do not know where it's going to go. If I had to completely just arbitrarily speculate right now, is this story about Sally having to kill Barry? Barry feels terrible about the things he's done and yet has not offed himself, but continues to off other people. And by the end, is Sally the only one that he would not fight back at? Would she be the only one who could pull the trigger and he wouldn't kill? I think he probably would take out Gene, maybe not his family, but would take out Gene. He probably would take out Jim Moss. I think he was ready to do that last year. He'll probably take out Hank. He has protected Hank up until this point, but basically anyone around Hank is open season. So I think if Hank comes at him, that killer switch will turn on and he'll go at him. Can he kill Fuchs? That's a good question. I think he wants to, but maybe he can't. Once again, he is his father figure, so maybe he can't actually do that. So Fuchs is still a risk, but I think it's going to be Sally, and uh, that's going to be a sad way to end things, but it would also be her closing her circle on these abusive men that she's had around her in her life. So that's my guess at this point. Uh, the destinations for the rest of these characters are very, very hard to, to know for sure, but I think it's going to be entertaining. I especially can't wait to see an exploration of this culture of celebrity criminals and true crime fascinations and just our toxic obsession with celebrity, as well as just this deeper exploration of the idea of performance, how we perform for each other all the time, and how hard it is to like get a real read on the people who are closest to us because they're so comfortable playing the role we expect them to play, how hard it is to actually cut through that clutter. And we only see Sally and Barry maybe the only characters that we're seeing very earnestly, their interiority. Probably Gene as well, although as petty as he is, we definitely are seeing the real version of Gene here although it's so tangled up in this persona that he portrays as well. And of course, just to see Hayter's continuing mastery of directorial choices and the design and thoughtfulness of the way this story is being told. So wow, how great to be seeing Succession and Barry in tandem, these two great shows coming to strong conclusions, all indications so far. And we'll be watching this up until May 28th. So the end of May, where Barry's story wraps up as well. Same night, 
as Succession. So that should be a very interesting evening and a very long evening for me to <laughs> be recapping and re recording those. All right. So to round off this episode, the final season of Better Call Saul, yet another final season is on Netflix right now, available to everybody in the US and probably worldwide. So do check that out. And I'm republishing a recap of the first two episodes of that final season of that show. And also check the show notes for additional links to other recap and review conversations about Better Call Saul. Or just check the podcast feed for more coverage of Barry, season three, full recaps of those episodes. And of course, Better Call Saul as well. Sona and I discussing the entire previous season, this season that's available on Netflix right now, as well in our feed. So check that out. And here's a little sample of it right now. Good morning, Don Juan. Lalo Salamanca is dead. Gunman broke into his hacienda last night. Hired operators from the look of it. It was messy, very messy. As for the Salamancas. Sangre por sangre. Yes, that is the Salamanca way. We are on the verge of chaos. But who did this? One minute I hear talk of the Colombians, the next, traitors. Traitors close to home. We know this much. Ignacio Varga is a rat. Don Eladio has put a price on his head. Every man we have is searching for him. When Varga's found, we'll know who he was working for. I assume Don Hector has been told. I called him myself. As for if he understood me, quién sabe. Listen to me. You must be careful, Gustavo. This is a dangerous time. No one is above suspicion. I understand. Good. As you may have noticed as fans of this series, each first episode we see a present state flash forward, I guess we would call it, present day versus flashback, and I guess the whole series isn't flashback. Not sure what the terminology would be, but we are in the future of the show itself, post-Breaking Bad, Saul Goodman on the lamb, and every single season we have this one black and white sequence that shows us what's happening in the current time frame. And these have all been in black and white. So interestingly, yet another cliffhanger we have is that Saul in last year's opener had been identified by somebody. This is the Cinnabon Saul that we've seen working in a mall incognito. And we find out what a difference he has versus his previous lifestyle in this episode. These, sequence, these sequences have normally, have normally been in black and white. This one we have just momentarily is in black and white before we go into full color, and understandably so, because it turns out that Saul, living high in the hog, as they say, and just some of the things we see here, we have people in overalls clearing out this room, this area, and they're basically cleaning out his digs, his mansion, as ostentatious as you can imagine. This is the caricature of like what they say Donald Trump, uh, his lifestyle is. For example, Donald Trump doesn't actually have a gold toilet, but <laughs> Jimmy McGill slash Saul Goodman does indeed have a golden toilet and golden tiled bathroom, I should say. He has a safe room we see here momentarily as they're clearing out his closet. He has murals painted. And we also see like bras and panties flying all like kind of laid out all over the place, indicating that there was quite the party before Saul made his, his getaway. And also making me wonder that I'm pretty sure Kim Wexler isn't around if that's the way he's living his life. And speaking of Kim Wexler, Vince Gilligan and his co-creator of the show, Better Call Saul, was giving an interview where they asked, what happens to Kim Wexler? And I think this was last season, when they were preparing this season. And he left a clue, which was, follow the tequila cap. It's understandable if you don't know the significance of this, by the way, but it's obviously important to 
the showrunners? As I mentioned before, it's very important whether you're reading a book, watching a movie, or in this case, watching a television show, to think about what are the filmmakers or the creators showing us first. And what they show us here is this bottle topper, which may seem vaguely familiar, and I'll let you know what it is if you haven't recently rewatched the show. There is a fictional tequila brand that's been circulating from through Better Call Saul, I should say, through Breaking Bad and now Better Call Saul, called Zafiro Ane- Añejo, Añejo, I believe. And it's a fake tequila brand. And the reason they had to come up with a fake one was because they couldn't get anybody to put their name on the tequila that Gus uses to poison his enemies back in a very memorable episode of Breaking Bad. So they invented a fake one. And as an inside joke, they've been reusing it across the franchise as an indicator of wealth and a very, very expensive high-end tequila. And the first time we see it in, in Better Call Saul is in season two, where we see Kim and Jimmy conning an obnoxious character called Ken, pretending to be kind of rubes that have inherited some money, and they're asking for his financial advice, and they get him to buy shot after shot after shot of this very expensive tequila, and they really enjoy stiffing him on the bill at the end. And there's a lot of symbolism on the show, but this is symbolic representation of Kim's duality, I believe. In this case, she has she puts on this persona, and it's a game they play that her and Jimmy slash Saul play. And for both of them, for Kim, the appeal is definitely to go after bad guys. But it also seems to be Jimmy's motif as well, to think of himself as a Robin Hood, stealing from the rich and giving to himself most of the time, but hopefully doing a little bit of good at the same time, or at least that's what he likes to believe. And Kim really likes this version of him, whether it's true or not. And I believe she aspires to it in in herself. It's the glue that keeps their relationship together. So it's very important that we see it here falling out out of the desk as it's being loaded onto the moving van at the end of this opening sequence, because it raises the question, why does Jimmy have it? Where is Kim if Jimmy has it? Because this bottle topper has floated throughout the show. There was a time when Jimmy thought he was going to get the Sandpiper settlement And he bought some tequila to celebrate with Kim. And she actually was too busy with her straight job and nearly dies in a car accident. So in a way, once again, this is what Kim gets for trying to play things straight. Jimmy also at the time is pretty much playing things straight. And he gets screwed out of the deal, out of the money as well. So that's another lesson learned and another time that the tequila comes in to represent something else. And as a matter of fact, when she decides to quit her job after things go terribly awry... She goes back to her office as she's cleaning out her office to get that bottle topper. So it's very symbolic of her relationship with Jimmy and also of this inner balance that she's trying to get between the criminal and the straight-laced overachiever that she's been when she's been trying to do things the straight and narrow way and the shortcuts that Jimmy's taken to achieve huge wealth, as we see here in this opening sequence. Like Vince Gilligan and Gould have drawn our attention to in these interviews, we should keep watching this bottle topper throughout the season and see what it foretells of the relationship between Jimmy and Kim. Okay, with just that opening sequence out of the way, we get into the plot. Nacho's on the run. We pick up basically the moment he lets the murder squad in and we see like a very quick one moment recap of the finale of last season. Nacho's on the run, running all night long. Note to anyone out there who's trying to use this as a blueprint for getting into the criminal world work on your cardio. (laughs) You never know when that cardio is going to pay off. And Nacho's going to run a lot. (laughs) So work on your cardio. Word starts to trickle out about the massacre and people believe that Lalo is dead. Lalo is trying to reinforce this belief 
and he goes to visit a guy. He calls him a mountain man. He's got covered in, in, in a very long beard. It's very interesting trying to read Tony Dalton's face here, the actor who plays Lalo, because we don't see it on camera, but he's being very courteous to this wife and her husband. But it's pretty clear that he murders them, murders them both, because, of course, she's an innocent bystander, but knows what's happening. And this guy, once he shaves that giant beard off, turns out to be a near spitting image of Lalo. Now, I don't know if this is a coincidence or if this is just somebody in his family that looks a lot like him. Or if this is actually like a body double, like for example, not only do, is it kind of infamously know that some of these drug dealers have the body doubles to ride in a separate car or something to, in case of assassination attempts. But we've also seen this with Saddam Hussein had his own body doubles and his sons as well. So whether this is something that is a coincidence or whether this is something that this is the guy's job to be his body double when he needs him to be, not made clear. <laughs> but what is made clear is that Lalo kills them. And the next time we see this body, it is terribly burned right by the oven back at his compound. And I'll have to figure out what Sona's read is on this, if I'm missing something here. But basically, the body is placed back, burned terribly as a stand-in for Lalo's corpse. The first we see of Saul here in, the, in this time frame, in this flashback time frame, he seems to have been up all night, probably worried about the conversation he had with Kim about setting up Howard to accelerate the Sandpiper deal closure. She has a plan and she really likes doing this pro bono work, which Sona brought up the fact that pro bono means you don't get paid. So how is she going to make money? And uh, we see a little flashback sequence. I mean, in the previously ons where Jimmy says exactly that going. So pro bono means you don't get paid. <laughs> so where's this money coming from? And uh, maybe she thinks blackmailing Howard or accelerating the Sandpiper deal settlement or a combination of both will get them that big payday, which allows her to focus on a pro bono work, which she finds very, very satisfying. Back in Mexico, we see that the murder twins have arrived to scope out the police investigation. And they're the ones who find Lalo's burned body or pseudo Lalo's burned body. Don Juan calls Gus. Gus is waiting for the call and lays it all out. There was this massacre at the compound at Lalo's house, his private compound. A total affront. Obviously, he was the target of this massacre. And the Salamancas will be looking blood for blood. They'll be looking for revenge. And this can go very, very badly because the Salamancas do not know who set up this hit. They're saying it could be the Colombians. It could be an inside job. It could be somebody else trying to climb the corporate ladder. But everyone is looking for Nacho because Nacho would be the only one who would know. Gus, of course, is incredibly smart. So when they're saying that Lalo's dead and they got the report that the mercenaries mentioned that the target was achieved and yet they're now all dead. All of them accounted for. Nobody ran off with some money or something. They're all accounted for. He's like, that doesn't sound right to me. Why are they all dead? Who killed them? He thinks Lalo's alive. There's a lot of tension here between Mike and Gus. Mike thinks you have to stand by your word. It's like one of his key rules. Even as a criminal, you got to be an honest criminal. Because if you don't have your word, no one can trust you. And meanwhile, he does not think that Gus is going to do the right thing as far as Nacho's concerned. And more importantly, Nacho's dad. And he says, he did the right thing for you. You got to do the right thing for him. And this is not going well. Jimmy goes to court. Kim's going to the court billing herself to do some pro bono work. She has a client who's been railroaded with a crime. And while Jimmy's there, the prosecutors, or actually he confronts them, I guess. And they said that they've looked into Lala's backstory or this fictitious de Guzman persona that he has. And his family's not real. And he doesn't have an address that's real. And in doing their due diligence, raised a lot of flags when he actually showed up with that bail money. His whole backstory is unraveled, obviously. And they're saying, we're revoking the bond and we need him to come in right away. 
And Jimmy says, look, he has 7 million reasons to come back. And you think that doesn't count, but it does. You say my guy ran. I say he's got 7 million reasons for showing up when he's legally required to do so. So, no, I won't be uh, due process window dressing at any crash meeting with Parson. And if you try throwing any of this crap around in front of the judge without my presence, here's an accusation. Prosecutorial misconduct. Career-ending prosecutorial misconduct. None of that changes the fact the guy's not who he said he was. No, no, no. Hold on. You guys got caught with your pants around your ankles and somehow that's on me? I don't think so. You've got two dozen lawyers up there. You got investigators. You got the whole damn police force. And it's my fault you can't keep track of Lalo. That is not my job. Lalo? Who's Lalo? What? What did I say? I meant the Guzman. I have more than one client. So, um, I will see you at the preliminary in six weeks, as scheduled. Until then, I have clients who need me. And he's able to make his stand, although don't know how long this is going to stand stand up. And that could be a problem for Lalo, because if he does have to come back over the border, he's going to be a wanted man. That night, Saul meets Kim at the El Camino Diner. That's very important. The El Camino, also symbolic here in the show. It means the road. And of course, we see in El Camino the car. There's a movie called El Camino. A, a sequel, a, a movie on Netflix. Pretty good. Not great, but good. With Aaron Paul. If you ever haven't tracked that down, definitely track it down. Still available on Netflix. And uh, Kim has just met with her client. And Saul comes to have dinner with her. And this is an interesting interaction. We find out that Kim is really enjoying the pro bono work. She's very committed to the Howard scam. And very interestingly, she asks Saul, why is he driving that car? He needs to be Saul Goodman. I uh, rented us a car. So it's the Ford. So Saul Goodman drives a brown Ford Taurus. Detroit calls that taupe, I believe. Don't you think Saul Goodman would drive something with a little more flair? Such as? <laughs> Definitely American made. Something showy. And Saul Goodman has an office. Something eye-catching. Good location. By the courthouse. Yeah. A cathedral of justice. Oh, a cathedral of justice. Okay, yeah. We should start looking for something for you. I mean, for Saul. Sold? When do we start? Saturday's good. Saturday it is. So, in a way, she is masterminding this Saul Goodman persona. You need to sell this criminal's criminal lawyer. When Kim mentions the Howard scam again, Jimmy asks her, you you were serious about that? And she's like, uh, you weren't? And they kind of feel each other out, but they decide to keep going with it. And she says, you got to go slow. He can't see us coming. And also that we should start with Cliff Main, and we will see this plot start to take effect. Meanwhile, Nacho's still running. Once again, folks, work on your cardio, something I definitely need to work on. He makes it to the hotel. He has been in touch, by the way, with Gustavo's other right-hand man. I forget this character's name this imposing and inscrutable guy. We know nothing about this guy. (laughs) He has no backstory. He's just very loyal to Gustavo and very imposing. He sneaks in when no one's looking and the woman who runs the hotel gives him a key inside the hotel room. He has cash, a gun, and a phone. We see Mike with his granddaughter. daughter. I can't wait to talk to Sona about this one. She she always has a problem with these kids grow too quickly. (laughs) Since the show's been off the air for two years, this girl's about twice as tall as she was before. (laughs) Very hard to hide this. Nacho's trying to call Mike. Mike does not answer. And as we know, Mike is very uncomfortable with this whole situation. Kim and Saul slash Jimmy are watching Howard play golf the next morning. 
Jimmy goes to take a tour of the facilities and whoops, Kevin is there, the Sandpiper CEO, and he does not want Saul there. This is a very funny sequence where Jimmy, as Saul Goodman, <laughs> throws a little anti-Semitism in here going like, oh, I see. You were very friendly when I showed in the door. And as soon as you found out my name was Saul Goodman, things get uglier and uglier from there. Kevin starts to confront him. It gets physical. And Saul makes a big scene. I guess I just have to start calling him Saul now because I think the transformation into Saul is pretty much complete at this point. And of course, all of this is a ruse. He says, oh, I need to go calm myself down. Can I just use your facilities? He gets into the locker room. Kim tries to reach out to him. Look, Howard is heading back in. You don't have enough time. Get out of there. But Saul's able to achieve his goal, which apparently is to put a small bag of baby powder in Howard's locker, obviously to look like drugs, cocaine, so that Cliff will see it. And it works. Cliff does happen to notice. What is that over there? And Howard's like, yeah, what is this? I, you think one of these members maybe put it in here? And Cliff's just like, it was in your locker. And just a little, just a little question mark as to how did that get in there? That's it. Just a little nudge. Next, we see an incredible shot of the desert, a drone shot, I assume. Lalo, of course, is live, alive and well, has been hitchhiking towards the U.S. border. Lalo gives his $2,000 in cash to one of the coyotes. And just as he's about to jump into the back of this truck that's going to smuggle them across the border, he decides to call his uncle. Lalo asks the coyotes how long it's going to take them to pack up and leave. And they say, we'll leave when we leave. And he says, okay, well, then I need to make a phone call. And they go, hey, we'll leave without you. And he says, be nice. He calls his uncle at the nursing home. And his uncle, who seems very sad to have heard that he had passed away, is now much happier to hear him alive. And he goes, and now I believe it was a chicken man. I know it. So I'm going to cross the border and I'm going to murder him. Of course, it's a terrible idea for him because he will probably be caught. And given the fact that he's already been arrested for another murder, it would probably be the end of him. So his uncle has something to say <laughs> in a very tedious letter by letter way. He starts to spell out proof. He needs proof. And Lalo says, there is no proof. I just know it. And then he says, wait a second, there is proof. And he asks for his money back and says, I'm not crossing the border. I'm going back. I changed my mind. I'm not going. And? And you give me back my money. There's no refunds, asshole. I told you. Be nice. But they're not nice. So he kills them. And then he tells all the folks who were about to cross the border, sorry, you're going to have to find another way across the border. He gives all the cash to the old lady in the back of the truck and says, can you make sure everybody gets their fair share? And he takes the truck, one of the other trucks of the border crossers and heads not over the border to the US, but back to Mexico. So where is this proof? Is it Nacho? I'm not sure what proof he's looking for. Because if he's looking for Nacho, the Salamanca is already on him. And that's the question we're left here as the episode ends. On to episode two, Carrot and Stick. I have a message from Nacho. He won't be coming back, he sends his regrets. So, here's what's going to happen. You're going to take what's yours, and you're going to leave. But you, 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 you want us to leave? Wait, that, that man, where is he going? He's helping you gather your things. But, but we like it here. 
Well, now you're going to like it someplace else. You're going to take this, get on a bus, go to your families. Don't have a family, then you can go to a friend. You don't have friends, then make some. But I strongly suggest you do whatever you can to get back on your feet. But do it far away from here. This goes back in my pocket in five seconds. You won't like what happens next. I think we're all familiar with the idea that there are two ways to get someone to do what you want them to do. There's the carrot and there's a stick. And we see multiple times the carrot, which is, hey, here's a reward for doing the right thing or doing what I want you to do anyway, in this specific circumstance. And then there's the stick, the thing you don't want. So you can take the carrot or you can take the stick, but either way, you're gonna do what I want you to do. And we see it here at the beginning. We are at Nacho's apartment with his strung out, possibly mentally ill, or possibly (laughs) one caused the other, (laughs) girlfriends, who are keeping themselves entertained while Nacho's missing. When Mike arrives, they of course freak out, thinking something terrible is about to happen. And Mike basically says, Nacho doesn't want to see you anymore. He's not coming back. And now you have to leave. And here's some money. Take this money and go back to your family or go back to your friends or make some new friends, but you can't stay here. And if you stay here, you're not gonna like what happens. Carrot and stick. They of course take the money and run. And here's another motif that we see many times in Breaking Bad and in this show also. Another very clever technique that you screenwriters and creatives out there that you should take into account. Creating a mystery that gets resolved in the episode to only reveal a bigger mystery. We see in meticulous detail that Mike goes, breaks into Nacho's safe, measures it out, has his man, his assistant, bring in exactly the same safe. They now open the safe, take out all his Nacho's money, and as other valuables here, those being a fake ID for himself and for his dad. Very importantly, Mike pockets the ID for his dad. And then they put in an identical safe. They put all the money back. They put the fake ID back, exactly as it was. Plus, they put in a piece of paper, a bill, that seems pretty mundane, And that's it. They lock it up and we're like, well, why did they do that? That mystery will be solved in this episode. But the larger mystery as to why they do this is not. So very clever. Meanwhile, back with Saul and Kim. Kim mentions the next step of the scam needs to be to get somebody to just bring up in passing to Cliff that maybe Howard has a drug problem. And it has to be a big enough deal that Cliff will hear them out. But Cliff can't actually take the client. So who could this be? Who could this be? And Jimmy says, wait a second. I think I have a perfect candidate. And here we go. We have the Kettlemans. We're coming full circle. Last season, circling back to season one. The Kettlemans, who embezzled all that money that Saul could have taken them for $2 million. And maybe all of the horrible things that are to befall these people could have been prevented if he had just stolen the money from those other criminals. And maybe that is the takeaway of this whole show in the end. Criminals should only steal from other criminals, especially these hapless folks who really can't keep themselves from getting to trouble. Of course, he plays them perfectly. He says, you know, the last time I gave you some inside information, you screwed me over. But I have information right now that can exonerate you. This is very funny. This whole sequence, by the way, very, very funny. And I really miss these two characters, Betsy and Craig from season one. At their tax preparation trailer, we see the inflatable Statue of Liberty, another iconic image from our Breaking Bad version of 
Saul. Craig immediately is like, hey, how you doing, Jimmy? <laughs> Even though he's done jail time because of Jimmy. Indirectly, of course. I mean, it's his own actions. And maybe he acknowledges that himself. Betsy, meanwhile, is the same. She doesn't trust him for a second. But he tantalizes them with the fact that you can be exonerated. We can actually get you exonerated. And of course, she still, or they both maybe, ever certain of their certainty, say, of course, that's why we ended up in jail. It's because the lawyer did a bad job. Not because they stole all their money. <laughs> of course not. Not that. And the second that he gives them this information, after supposedly having a bulletproof document that they cannot go behind his back, she goes, I can go see any lawyer I want to. I already know this trick. And goodbye. We're taking this to a real lawyer. Which, of course, is Saul's plan from the beginning. So Jimmy's plan works. The Kettlemans have gone to see Cliff Maine as the big hotshot lawyer in the area. He doesn't talk to them initially himself. They talk to like a junior partner. But they're like, no, we need to talk to the big man. We got big news here, which of course it works because he's like, I don't want to talk to them. Wait a second. It's about Howard. Hmm. Let me listen to this. And then again, they say, I think Howard was maybe high when he was representing us. And they say, do you have any evidence of this? And they say, oh, it'll all come out in discovery, which of course is something that Jimmy said, slipping Jimmy. But he thinks this doesn't really sound right. You don't really have evidence. You don't really have a case. And by the way, I can't really do any work because it'll be conflict of interest. We're already doing other work with them and you should go see other lawyers about it, but I don't think you're going to get anywhere with this. Just my honest opinion. And they leave in a huff and like, we are going to go talk to other lawyers. Betsy's still very confident about this at this moment. And they leave, but we see another, another little seed getting planted. Cliff is, hmm, what's happening? What is this thing about Howard again? Two times now. What did you learn? Lalo Salamanca lives. Mike suggests that everyone is going to be looking for Nacho. And the best thing they could do is go find him and rescue them himself, themselves. And honestly, I don't know what's happening here. And it'll become further confused. Gus could have killed off Nacho. He's letting him live to some pur- for some purpose. And I'm not sure what that is yet. At this point, mystery number one of this Russian nesting doll, mystery of what's happening, Don Juan himself have arrived at Nacho's apartment. They cut open the safe and they find the cash the fake ID, everything that we saw earlier in the episode, plus that envelope. Why was that envelope in there? It has a phone number scrawled across the bottom. And when they call that phone number, it's the phone number to the hotel, the hotel where Nacho's staying. So circling back to the beginning of the episode, one reading of this was that Mike did this on his own. Mike is letting Nacho get caught to get him out of the clutches of Gus, potentially, but that's not the case at all. Gus's right-hand man is there with him. So Gus is orchestrating this. He's allowing the cartel to capture Nacho? If Nacho talks, it points right back to him. So he wants that to happen? Or he thinks Nacho will keep his mouth shut? Maybe because they threaten his dad? Maybe? And if that's the case, they haven't communicated that to him, not recently anyway. So very big mystery as to what Gus's grand scheme is. Whatever it is, we know it works because he survives and he's still tight with the cartel. So that right now is my biggest question mark on this whole show. At this point, things start to really accelerate in the episode. Nacho is pacing relentlessly in his room. And he has been eyeing up since the very beginning, since the moment he got there, he's been eyeing up this little shack across the way. And he sees the drip, drip, drip of an air conditioner. Someone is in that shack. Someone's watching him. And he does his Batman thing again. He kicks out the air conditioner from his hotel room, does a little parkour. (laughs) So get your cardio in, learn a little parkour if you plan to be the the next Nacho Varga. Circles around, he's got that gun, goes into the shack, And he catches a guy. He's like, hey, I'm just here 
watching you. I don't know who's doing this. I don't know anything. Nacho, of course, smart. Everyone on this show, very smart, by the way, except for the Kettleman's probably. He calls Gus's henchman, says, I can't stay put anymore. I got to cross the border on my own. Of course, this is just to get him worked up because then the phone starts vibrating. The other phone, our watcher's phone. So now he knows who's watching him. So Gus has set this whole thing up, set up the hotel, has him watch the whole entire time, all with the plan of having him wait there until the cartel comes to get him. But why? Once again, so confused by this. What is the plan? They'll say, yeah, he showed up here days ago. He's been waiting for somebody. Who? Who's he waiting for? He can't say it's Gustavo. Can't, can't imagine that that's what Gustavo wants them to hear. So what is this plan? I have no idea. And the cartel does show up now that they have that phone number and they've traced it back here. And the murder twins are with them. So the Salamancas and the cartel are here. There's a big shootout. They need him alive. So one of the murder twins ends up killing one of the other cartel members to make sure that Nacho survives. But they capture him anyway. Now, two really fascinating things happen here at the end of the episode. One is that Nacho calls Mike and wants to talk to Gus. It's him. Oh, shit. I've been calling Vargas for hours. He hasn't picked up once. He's been trying to get me since he left Salamancas. You want me to answer it? Now, we have to assume this is after he's been captured. So we have to assume that whoever has him knows that Gus did this. How does Gus survive <laughs> to make it to Breaking Bad? Big question mark here. The second really entertaining and fascinating thing that happens here at the end is that Jimmy goes to see the Kettlemans. The Kettlemans had figured out that Saul slash Jimmy played them, but Kim doesn't want to let him go by himself. He says, I'm going to use a carrot, not a stick. He's going to bring some cash to pay them off. She's like, nah, I'm going to come with you. When they arrive, they say, we know what you're doing. I don't know what you're trying to do to Howard, but I do know that you're trying to screw over Howard. They, of course, are not happy to see her because they actually blame her for what happened to them. But he says, that's okay. She's just a friend. And she just is checking out the place, walking around, getting a feel for it while they're threatening Jimmy, saying, I don't know what you want us to do. You can't just pay it off with a little, bit of, a little bit of cash. And we are going to go to Howard with everything that's happening. Saul goes, here's a little bit of money. Just let it go. They say, that's not going to work. Whatever you want, you're trying to do to Howard, we're going to let him know. And I'm going to blow up your plan. Kim goes, okay, enough carrot. I know you don't want us going to Howard Hamlin, because whatever it is you're up to, I'm sure he would be very interested. Okay, let's just go easy on the threats. We want our lives back. The way they were before. Before. We lost everything. And we didn't deserve any of this. Okay. Enough carrot. <clears throat> Internal Revenue Service, Albuquerque. Hi, could you put me through to Justin Stangle and Criminal Investigations? One moment, please. What are you doing? Excuse me. This is Justin. Justin, Kim Wexler, how are you? Hey, Kim, good to hear from you. How are Noreen and the boys? Listen, I was wondering who your CID officer is these days. You have something for us? Oh, I just might. Tax preparer fraud. A lot of it. I'm listening. Well, it's this uh, rundown little mom and pop outfit I've had my eye on for a while. <laughs> From what I can glean, their clients always end up with smaller refunds than they deserve. Please don't do this. Does a client sign over third party authorization? Bingo. So what I'm thinking is, these creeps file legit returns with you guys, give the clients fake ones that show about half the proper amount and then pocket the difference. Classic scam. 
Well, I know just the guy to go after these dirt bags. I'll transfer you over. Such a big help, Justin. You got it. You don't have to do this. Don't I? Betsy, you'll probably get 24 months, maybe 18 with good behavior. But Craig, you are a two-time loser. They will definitely make an example out of you. Each false return they discover will be a separate felony. What are we talking, 100? 200? C.I.D. Anthony or Apollo speaking. Saul has a look on his face like, wow, Kim is real cutthroat. And he's kind of seeing the full bloodlust in her now. I think she finally knows what she wants, and it's to be this pro bo- do this pro bono work to make herself feel like she's doing the right thing. And she doesn't care who she has to take down. If she just doesn't think that they are good people, she will destroy them. And by the way, this is also, I think, who Jimmy sees himself as. So now we finally see, at this moment, what draws these two together. And as they leave, Jimmy's driving away and he goes... And I excerpted this, by the way, last week, if you haven't caught up on it, we had a quick discussion, Sona and I, about Better Call Saul up until now. Not a full recap of the show, but just kind of thematically what interests us in the show. And I called out, even included some audio from the very late, the first flashback we see, or like the earliest flashback we see of Saul when he's a teenager, where he sees this guy stealing from his dad's convenience store. And he tells the kid, he tells a, a young Jimmy, there are sheep in this world and wolves. And you have to decide, kid, who you want to be. So here we are. Jimmy gets in the car with Kim and he says, sheep and wolves. And she says, huh? And he goes, well, never mind. But we know what it means. She is a wolf. They are sheep. And last mystery of the episode, they pull away and there's somebody following them. Who is following them? Is Gus keeping an eye on them? Is Lalo keeping an eye on them? He's still in Mexico, but is he curious? You know, he is very fascinated by what actually happened with that money transfer. And is this somehow tied in with what happened down in Mexico? So did he have somebody following them around? It remains to be seen. And that's where we leave things. Okay, so what did I think of all this? I thought this was incredible. We are right back in the thick of it. We hit the ground running. We have some great suspense, some great action here. And the stakes could not be higher, right? Like Howard's career is at stake. Jimmy and Kim's relationship could be in trouble, depending on what happens with this scam and how comfortable Saul slash Jimmy is with all this. Kim's soul is at stake. (laughs) Is she going to give in to the dark side? Nacho's life is at stake. And so is Gustavo. And we know Gustavo survives. We know that Mike survives. But there's something really tantalizing to watch a show and think, in any other circumstance, these people are definitely going to die. But we know they don't. So it's like, well, how did that happen? How does that happen? Right? So fascinating to me anyway. Some people complain that, you know, because we know these people survive, it somehow takes away the stakes. And we don't know that all these people survive, by the way. Kim may not survive. Why does Jimmy have that bottle topper? Nacho probably doesn't survive. I can't imagine him surviving this. Lalo probably does survive because he's just a shark. But I do want to mention something about Lalo here. He seems to do the decent thing with the money and seems to have some concern for those people in the back of the truck that were about to cross into the US. I mean, he didn't have to murder them all. It's just more mess that he has to clean up if he does. But he does honestly seem to have concern for them. And he also, it's kind of hard to read Tony Dalton's face, the actor, when he's about to murder his lookalike. But he does seem to have some regret as he's asking them about the mundanities of their lives, knowing that they're going to be put to an end so soon. So I am curious. We've just only been seeing him as this one-dimensional monster, only as an antagonist. But maybe we'll get to know him a little bit better here. Great performances all around. Great style. The show looks great. Great little details. And yeah, what a great twofer. 
very excited to see where it goes from here.